Hi, and welcome to Walk Talk, a podcast courtesy of the Wound, Ostomy, and Continence Nurses Society. Walk Talk is your opportunity to learn more about advocacy, education, and research that support the practice and delivery of expert healthcare to individuals with wound, ostomy, and continence care needs. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast to subscribe and make sure you never miss an episode. Now, here's your host, Jody Scardillo. week's edition of Walk Talk. This week, I'm delighted to welcome Jill Cox and Rachel Durango. They are the co-authors with Mary Reed, Devin Holm, and Andrew Narrow on a study in the May-June issue of the journal Woundostomy and Continence Nursing. This article is entitled, Predictors of Hospital Readmission in Patients Undergoing Creation of an Intestinal Ostomy. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm excited to talk to you about your article from the journal recently. So I was hoping both of you could tell me a little bit about your WOC nurse background. Maybe Jill start first and then Rachel. Sure, Jody. Thanks so much for having us today to talk about the study that we were very excited about. And we'll kind of tell you how this study came to be in terms of why we even started this study. But I have been a WOCN nurse for 30 years. My practice has been in the acute care setting. I work as a full scope wound ostomy and continence. So in addition to doing my wound ostomy incontinence at APN practice, I'm a clinical professor at Rutgers University in Newark and New Brunswick, New Jersey for the past 10 or 12 years. So most of my research has been in pressure injuries in critically ill patients. So ostomy though has always been a clinical passion of mine and a clinical interest. And I'm so glad we finally got, we're able to do a study now looking at this population. So Rachel? So when I was actually studying for my Master of Science in Nursing to become an adult gerontology nurse practitioner, I had the privilege of doing clinical hours with Jill. So after I graduated and became an NP, I decided to be specialized in wound ostomy incontinence. So I attended the WebWalk program, and she has mentored me into the role here at Englewood Hospital. And I've been a WebWalk, oh, sorry, a WALK nurse practitioner at Englewood Hospital for five years now. Good for you. And what kind of nursing did you practice before you went to get your master's? So I did med surge nursing and I actually floated everywhere. So I was a float nurse. So tell me what led you to take on this project? It sounds like it was a big project. So we decided to take on this study because Rachel and I were seeing anecdotally that we were having a high readmission rate, in particular of patients who had high output stomas, high output ileostomies you know, across all different diagnoses. So we started to look at this and say, well, you know, do we really understand why they're coming back in in, with dehydration and AKI? So it sort of led to a study. And over the course of probably 10 years or more, I've been keeping databases of patients that we've seen. I'm sure most of the WOCNs out there do that in terms of who their patients were et cetera, what surgeries. So we decided actually to take a deep dive into what were the reasons why these patients were being readmitted to the hospital and is there something that we could do better in terms of care and in terms of decreasing that rate. And it sounded like you used that departmental data or stats that you keep to extract a lot of that data. Did I understand that right? And how did you get that all done? That's correct. So what we did was, again, we have listed all of the ostomy patients that have been created here at Englewood Hospital. And for the start to eat, we targeted population where patients that had intestinal ostomies, colostomies, and ileostomies between the years of 2018 and 2021. 
And we actually recruited one APN in the colorectal service and four med surge nurses that actually worked on the floors where these patients were actually admitted. Oh. How did they respond to helping collect that data? I, that sounds like a really good way to get nurses involved and interested in research. It really was because then they got brand new nurses. They were less than two years out from graduation. So it was a nice way to introduce them into data collection. And one of the new nurses, part of the nurse residency program, made it her project, her evidence-based practice project. Oh, wow. That's a great idea. So one of the nurse residents, she's an author on this study as well. So we coerced her into writing a part of the article, which was not an easy sell, but, you know, knowing that in her future, this would be good for her. So she did a nice job with that. And she also helped us with data entry from our data forms to the SPSS spreadsheet. So she was really instrumental. Another fun fact, one of the staff nurses that helped us actually wanted to be an ostomy, wanted to go into ostomy care. So she's now a new WOCN. Unfortunately, she went to another hospital in order to practice because we didn't have a role for her at Englewood at this time. But, you know, she was had a big interest in mostly ostomy patients, not as much wound care. And this was sort of a springboard for her to say that she really wanted to practice this. So Fortunately, we lost the nurse, but we gained a WOCN nurse. Wow, that's great. And then did you seek funding or have funding for this? Or this was all like after work and when you had a few spare minutes to collect all this data? How did that all go as far as the study was concerned? So we were self-funded, basically. So the hospital allowed our MedSearch staff nurses to come in and collect data for us, and they were able to be paid during that time. So that wasn't they were very generous about that because there is a good ethic and a culture in terms of research and the value of research and evidence-based practice projects at Englewood. So they were really much in favor of that. So, But as far as Rachel and I, we did that during our work time and entered the data during the, everything was done during work time, So, which was fine. It was good that we had that time. Yeah, that's great. And then you had a huge list of data elements that you gathered. So now when you look back at all this, is there anything that you wish you had gotten that you didn't? So I think one of the variables that we didn't collect is something that represents nutrition, even though we know we don't have good biomarkers for nutrition. We collected BMI, but that's very static and doesn't really give you good information about nutrition. So I think if we would have looked at something like recent protein calorie malnutrition, recent weight loss, something like that, that may have captured something and then look at that in relation to an ostomy complication or even a surgical complication and length of stay. Does that really impact length of stay as well? So that was something that we we could have looked at. And we actually, we didn't look over time, which in terms of were there certain types of stomas that became more prevalent over time. So we know we had an N of almost 50% ileostomies, but thinking about it now, I would be interested to know whether most of those ileostomies were done, this was five years of data, were done in the last two years of data. So that sort of tells you what are the trends now in ostomy surgery in terms of what we're seeing as WOC nurses. So those are just two things that I was thinking of. I don't know if Rachel, if you had anything that you were any thoughts? You know, what I was also thinking is that we didn't collect data on like patients' disposition after readmissions after their 30 day and 60 days, and wondering if those patients actually had to return, like if they went to rehab and had to return back to rehab, or were they able to go home? Mm-hmm. Yep, good point. Good point. Yeah, they had long lengths of stay after with the readmits. We did, and most of them, as you saw, were for infection and sepsis. So they definitely were sicker. They came back sicker into the institution, be it one month or two months after their surgery. So, yeah, that was actually a surprise, too, how long they stayed. So. 
I also thought maybe they stayed longer because since they were here for infection, that maybe IV antibiotics or their hemodynamic stability also takes part in their length of stay. Oh, right, right. And then like home with antibiotics or not, right? Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's a good point. And then were you surprised about only 10% of your patients of your ileostomies had a high output? And I think it was nine and a half or 10% had peristomal skin problems. I feel like all of our patients do. And maybe that's just because that's what we all do all day. But what did you think about that result when you got that? So thinking that that was really the genesis of the study was all these patients were coming back with high output stomas and dehydration. We absolutely thought, even though that was our number one ostomy complication during the index hospitalization, right, during their first hospitalization, it was lower, lower than we anticipated. And again, I'd love to look at that temporally and look at, okay, so now is in later days, are we seeing more ileostomies and more high output in the last couple of years versus over time, you know? So knowing now a little bit more about how high output and when it sort of makes sense if we have a lot of patients that have these abdomens that are infected, high output is definitely more associated with that. So we're definitely seeing that more, that correlation now between infection and high output in, in our ileostomy stomas. But yeah, you're right. But we did find in our in our cross-tabs association that, and this is nothing new to WOC nurses, that the ileostomies were the high outputters where the leakage and where the peristomal irritation, right? It all goes together. Those are the people. The colostomies, well, they did pretty well. Everybody, you know, essentially did well with their skin and and leakage issues. So anyway, so that wasn't a surprise in terms of that finding for sure. Okay, yeah. And then your average ASA score was three, I think, which that's not a real healthy population in general. Is that kind of consistent with what you see in practice as you work with your patients? You know, a lot of medical problems, not really healthy people at baseline before they even have surgery. I would say that it doesn't seem to me anecdotally to be what we say. So I think 2.7 was, so it trended towards a three, which is a systemic disease. So our number one diagnosis was cancer, active cancer diagnosis, and that's considered a systemic disease. So that's why I think it kicked the ASA score. Up. So we just took them right off the OR records that were deemed by the anesthesiologist. So that's what I'm thinking that. But because, you know, again, are our trends changing? And with ileostomies and cancer now, are we seeing younger patients? Yes, we absolutely are seeing younger patients who don't seem to have functional decline, as one would think when you see these very high ASA scores. So again, it'd be interesting to trend over time. Like right? what are we seeing in, in a two-year data collection versus the five? So Sounds like your next study, right? Yeah. <laughs> now that we're saying that, I think you're right. <laughs> I just gave you another project, right? Okay, Jody. Yeah. <laughs> maybe, maybe a couple of sites. Maybe we could do a multi-site study. There you go. There you go. I, I'm in the same situation, so. Okay. And then what did you both think? I was interested in this, that there was no significant association between the pre-op stoma sighting and the stoma complications. What did you think about that? Was that because of your sample size or... What did you make of that since you know your population and all that data so well? So a couple of things. So when we looked at how many stomas we actually marked over the course of the five years, it was, what was the amount? I forget. It was like 70% of our stomas were marked. Our elective stomas were marked over time, which to be honest, I think, and Rachel probably can attest this as well. I feel like we're marking elective cases all the time. I feel like that's maybe, and again, Maybe that's just happening in the last couple of years. So 
I think that the relationship between pre-op stomatitis and stomach complications is hopefully that's a good thing. I mean, that's what really should be happening. But again, we only looked at those stomach complications and marking in the index hospitalization. So as we know, a lot of those complications happen later, you know, like parastoma hernias or usually don't happen in the during that seven, 10 day hospital stay or shorter and mucocutaneous separation as well. That's not something that we see high output. Absolutely. So I think that we saw what we wanted to see in terms of, yes, that it was a good thing, but I'm not sure if there's really a relationship to that, if you know what I mean, when we look truly at complications that patients have. But I think that we also found that, as I said, it seemed like we were marking everyone, but obviously we're not. Obviously, there are people that are not being seen. And we are fortunate. We have three colorectal surgeons who are very supportive of WOC nurses and call us all the time. But we also have these sort of other surgeons out there that aren't really, okay, they do their cases, but they don't really call us if they need to be marked, or a lot of the cases are done weekend, middle of the night, you know, things like that. So I think there's room for improvement in that in terms of reaching out to other surgeons. But I would say these three colorectal surgeons we have are the bulk of our business anyway. So Rachel, I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that. So I'm excited. No, you were definitely spot on. And then actually one of our colorectal surgeons, she tries to also mark her patients prior to stoma surgery. Oh, that's great. So they're aware. Yeah, they are. They're very they aware of reach out. Yeah. Yep. Downstream effect of a poorly sighted stoma. And so what do you think were the most, I thought there was a lot of important information in this study, but when you were looking at this and writing it up, what did you think was the most important things or thing that you learned from the results of this study? So the highlighted definitely from our study, the like the two significant risk factors for predicting readmission in our population was the anatomical location of the stoma, the ileum or transverse colon, and the length of stay of a patient. And also to take away is that patients post-operatively, especially if they have an ileostomy with high output, need surveillance, you know, frequent follow-up is important. And anything that surprised you, like when you looked at it, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Anything like that from the results? I think for me, what surprised me is that we are doing many more ileostomies than I thought we were when you really count the not because in my mind, having done this for so long, I would have said Hartman's procedure, even though that was the most common surgical procedure, it looks like our ileostomies overall were the more common procedure that's done. So I think that was something that was not what I was thought we were going to find. And also the high rate of cancer, rect colorectal cancer in our sample was, I think we were at like almost 44% had an active cancer diagnosis within the population. So again, I think that all goes hand in hand with having an active colorectal surgery service and practice, you know, within the institution that absolutely is, is a part of the reason there. But and as we're seeing lately, younger patients, much younger patients under 50, under 40 with rectal cancer that are getting neoadjuvant treatment lower anterior reception, diverting loop ileostomy, and then back in six or eight weeks, which is the standard of care for that procedure nowadays. So it seems like that's probably why we're seeing more ileostomies as well, because that's what the norm is. And, and, you know, I don't really know about robotic surgery now, since robotic surgery is probably within the last three to five years, we're seeing more robotic surgery. And will we, is there more complications in terms of stomas with a robotic surgery? I don't know, but I, I'm curious about that. So, you know, anecdotally, are there more anastomotic leaks? I feel like I see that, but I don't know that for sure. I don't know the deep dive in the data to say, oh, yeah, we definitely see more complications. 
length of stay is shorter. But I think one of the things that we sort of are discovering, and this is not necessarily a takeaway from the study result, but it's a takeaway from having to really think about this a little bit in terms of what happens to patients after discharge. So in our sample, most patients went home, 60% went home with home care with a nurse, right? And then the second was a subacute. What we're finding here, in we're in the northern New Jersey area right outside of New York. There are not a lot of WOC nurses in home care agencies anymore. Maybe one that's left that, you know, is someone that has a lot of skill in home care. So we're finding that patients go home, even though they have a home care service, they don't have a WOC nurse to take care of them and to get them situated. And we know that's when all the leaks are starting to happen once they get home and they're more active and their stool consistency might be changing. That's when they need that person. So that was something I think we started to think about. And also the subacute facilities in our area as well do not have resources for WOC nurses. There are no nurse experts. So we send these patients to these facilities, we send them with supplies, we send them with instructions. And a lot of times they come right back to the hospital because of appliance failure. That's probably the number one reason they come back, you know, anecdotal this is, of course. So I think that was sort of, I think it sort of raised our awareness that this is a problem. I don't know if it's a problem across the country or if it's just happening in New Jersey. I sense it probably is across the country as we're all aging in our WOs. Many of us have been doing this for years. COVID has completely changed healthcare. So yeah, there's definitely some room for improvement there, which is sort of where we are going next in terms of looking at how we, what are we going to do in terms of the results of the study. So that segues right into my next question was, have you implemented any changes in how you take care of these patients or what are you thinking you will implement to help manage this situation? Do you have any thoughts on that? So this is my thought. And then Rachel, I'll let you say your thoughts as well on this. So one thing is Mary Reed, who was one of our co-authors on the study, She's an NP in the colorectal surgery practice. So we are much better, and she is much better now about getting these patients on her radar, especially the patients that go home and have no VNA services because we're finding Medicaid, there's not a lot of contracts with these agencies, so they have no follow-up. So besides the skilled nurses, that I mean, the skilled VNAs, we have no VNA. So they're more on the radar. And unfortunately, a lot of those patients are Spanish-speaking as well. So that opens up a whole nother host of issues in terms of making phone calls and things like that and having the necessity to have somebody who's fluent in Spanish in this area. So we definitely are more aware and there's more proactivity in terms of getting patients into the colorectal surgeon's office if they're having any type of ostomy issue. So go ahead, Rach. I know you have to say something. I was just going to say just exactly that is that when the patient's usually even coming, following up, we let them know that when they're doing the follow-up surgical visit with the surgeon, that to even reach out to us to let us know that they're coming in in case they have any questions or issues managing their ostomy, especially for those patients that don't have the resources at home. And do most of your patients go out on some kind of anti-diarrheal, like your ileostomy patients, would you guess? Like it seems like most of ours start something and then we end up upping it when they get get home because it's not enough. I would say if they're high output stomas, not as a routine, not all ileostomies are not routinely, but yes, if they've had high output and that that's a great segue, Jody, into our next thing that we're doing is developing standing protocol and standing orders in EPIC for high output ostomy management in terms of looking at the use of Imodium, looking at the use of Lamodal, 
looking at when do you add a creatide, looking at the blood work that we should be monitoring because we didn't have that. We don't have that now. And we're finding that there's a lot of inconsistencies between surgeons, surgical residents. And so it's not managed effectively or and, and really efficaciously, I should say. So that's sort of our next thing. So we can standardize the care for high output stomas. Again, knowing that that's the most common complication, but we didn't find that as the most common readmission. We thought AKI and dehydration were going to be the reason most people came back, and it was infection and sepsis. So anyway, which could be a close cousin. They might have that as well. So yeah, that's what we're doing right now. And I, I have to say that our surgeons, our chief of colorectal surgery was really into this study in the beginning. So we went to her early on, and I said, this is what we're going to look at. These are the variables that we're going to look at. And, you know, she was really very interested in this work, and she is really right on board doing some sort of order set because it only helps the surgeons and the, and the surgical residents and the patients, of course. Right, right. So then that, like, algorithm or whatever you're going to develop will be done on the inpatient, started on the inpatient yeah, side. Yeah, right. correct. So, right, yeah, before and, they even get home. Yeah. Yep. And that's a good point because then that should be something that is followed through, something that a patient can get in terms of looking at management, continued management over time, because I think that happens that they may not follow up on the medications that they're getting over time. So yeah, to me, it has to be something very simplistic that patients can follow, you know, like you're saying, you up the dose of loperamide, that's what, you, you know, two a day, if, if it's not working, like tincture of opium, it's not really easily available out there in the world. So in terms of using that particular medication, and sometimes these doctors, they do prescribe in-house for that. So yeah, hopefully that will make it better. We're going to have to make it better for those patients that are home as well. Right. And do you send your patients out measuring their output for any length of time, like these high output stomas that you're starting to manage with these antidiarrheals? Do you have them measure their output like so they come back for a post-op visit or? Yeah, the surgeons do. They absolutely do. They have the measure. So, and they usually, if there are high output, they're on the radar and they usually back in the doctor's office within the first four to five days. Anyway being seen, you know, to be sure that they're okay. And, you know, I have to say the advent of all these high output pouches now that are available, I think this is really great for patients in terms of managing high output, not, you know, in, in terms of being, making it easier to empty, measure, and all those types of things. There's a lot of resources now in terms of appliance management. So that's a good point. And then I'm assuming you said you work closely with your surgeon. So what was their feedback? I assume you shared your results with them. What kind of feedback did you get from them about your results? I don't think they were surprised at all at what they found. I think they were very, very much, you know, knew that surgical complication that we found was definitely going to be the number one surgical complication. And again, I'd like to know if that has stuck over time because we did that, we did the five years. I'd like to know if we have more anastomotic leaks now versus intra-abdominal abscesses. I'd say it's probably the same, just, you know, just thinking about our patient population. So I think that it is what they thought it was going to be. And again, as we did look at a surgeon and we looked at who's doing what types of procedures the most and complications and things like that, which we didn't share in, in the study results, but that is definitely of interest to the colorectal surgery service department in terms of looking at that and improving practice. Okay. So are you continuing to gather this data now? Like you finished this part of the study. So are you continuing to keep all this data that you've been keeping all along for this? We just continue to create our list. So in case we do want to pursue another study, we'll always be able to dive into the medical record and pull up data. But we also have keep, we're now keeping track of in the last year, looking at if you get readmitted. So we it's an Excel spreadsheet that we created 
So now we have a, you were readmitted and why were you readmitted into the hospital? So we sort of have a better story right at our fingertips for that particular patient. So if we ever wanted to do another study, we now have all data from this particular year instead of having to dive back in. So we could easily move forward and do another few years worth of data collection. So we'll see. We'll see where that leads us. I'm not sure. Not sure. So (laughs) it would be interesting to see high output stomas and better management. If we have a standardized approach to that, will we find that high output stomas are better controlled, you know, in terms of, of treatment or management? So that I'd like to say, that I would like to study. So you have a lot of next steps you could possibly do with all this information, right? We do, Jody, you're right. Right. <laughs> what do we do? Eat. <laughs> right, right. One thing begets another, begets another, right? You're right. That's exactly right. That's what happens in research, right? You go down that rabbit hole, you start with one question, and then all of a sudden you have multiple questions that keep coming out of that. So yeah, that's yeah. the fun of research. Yeah, so. you have so much data, though. That's really great that you've kept up that up all, over time. Yeah, that's really good. And we didn't keep that data set. We started doing this, like as we said, like 10 years ago, just so we would easily be able to pull up a patient if they called, you know, to say, oh, okay, yeah, this patient had a heartless procedure, so we know a little bit about what happened to them. Not thinking that we were going to turn it into a research study, but really, it really has it really was great. Or I don't know if we would have been able to do the study because we wouldn't have had the amount of stomas because it was every stoma that was done within the facility, you know, within those years. So yeah, it would have been hard to capture that. Yeah, we, would, way. we wouldn't have been able to, they would have had to extract and we've changed medical epic we're in now, but we were in something McKesson earlier. So they can't get the data. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't have been able to get as much data, I think. Right. 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 Exactly. It would have been more difficult. Yeah. So if I were wanting to do something like this in my organization, what suggestions would you have now that you have the benefit of hindsight and having done all this work? Anything that you would say, oh, make sure you do this or anything like that, if somebody else was interested in sort of replicating this with information they have? Yes, with people that are collecting the data, make sure they're familiar with the electronic medical record because the new nurses that were using Epic on a daily basis, they were so quick to extract that data. Yeah, that's a very good point. They were so agile in terms of where they needed to go to get the data points. So we made these instruction sheets for them. If you're looking for this, go here. But some of them, they know the shortcuts and they know how to get through it. And I think I think that's the lesson, too. Like you should employ a group. Well, I don't mean employ, but, you know, sort of get a group of nurses to work with you on the project because it does one of two things. As Rachel said, they're much better at data collection in terms of getting the data, but it also energizes them. In terms of the problem, you really get a little bit of buy-in from staff in terms of this because they wanted to know, like the nurses that were on the study wanted to know what what happened, what were the results. They collected all this data. Where did it all go and what did it turn into? So I think that has been a successful recipe. I've used that before in previous studies, having our ICU nurses collect data for us, and they really were very much more invested in, in the problem and in the solution. Do you think they were more proactive with taking care of your patients too, since they were participating in that? Like they were looking for all these things in the record. It would seem like that would then transfer into, oh, I have this patient and his ostomy puts high. Did you see some of that in terms of their clinical practice? I think they were definitely more engaged in care because they understood it, but they were all relatively new nurses, right, Rachel? Like two to three years experience, they med surge experience or surgery. They all worked on the surgical unit. So I think it was really something that this was their tribe, their patient population, right? This is what they really saw every single day. So I think it gave them better insight 
into all of the issues besides my patient came back with a stoma. Well, what are all the other things we're looking at related to the stoma? Some things that they probably have never thought about in practice. So I think it absolutely engaged them. And as I said, one of them wound up going to WOCN, the WebWalk program, and is now a WOCN, so, or WOC nurse, I should say, in another facility. So yeah, that was a very successful strategy that I absolutely recommend. And nurse residents, using your nurse residents, you know, in terms of project, if they're looking for project implementation, as many of these facilities now have nurse residency programs and they're required to do some project and when they get to the end of the program, these are wonderful opportunities for them. A, they see the value of research and they sort of see it in a clinical context of which they, you know, will improve only their like cognitive and intellectual skills in terms of nursing. So I think that it's it's a win-win overall. Yeah. All right. What else should I have asked you? Anything else important about your project? It really was beautifully done. Great article, really clear and easy to read. It was really beautiful work. So what else should I have asked you or what else do you think is important that you want to talk about? The only other thing that I will say, if you're going to embark on a research study, you know, if you have the ability to get a data analyst or a statistician in your either working in your facility that you should definitely do that because they definitely bring an insight into how data analysis should be run. So one of our last author, Andrew Nara, was a data analyst. And he really did, we kind of, we knew what we wanted to do. We knew we wanted to do a, a regression analysis to what were these significant independent predictors. But he really did all the pairwise correlations and things like that in terms of setting those things up for us and get us a little bit more information. So, you know, like at 60 days, I think it was patients who had an index hospitalization of three weeks. For some reason, those were the people that were readmitted at 60 days. That was a significant correlation. So if we didn't have a data analyst, I don't know if we would have had such a deep dive into that. It was the absolute right thing to do statistically. So that would be one other thing that I would say if you're going to embark. And we were fortunate that he was a consultant to the hospital, so he was not a fee, if you will. He was paid for his work. But you were able to use his expertise. We used his services, yes. Yeah. 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 We've used them a few projects and it's great. But. So he set you up for success in running the right tests for the data that you had, sounds like. He did. So I would run the analysis in SPSS and then he'd run the analysis in R and we would compare what we got in terms of what were we seeing the same things. And then he started doing all these pairwise analyses as well. So it really, yep, it was good. It was very good. So, And I think that's the thing that scares people when they want to do research is, oh my gosh, what's the statistical test I'm going to do? And how about you, Rachel? What else is important from your end that we didn't talk about? Talk about just encouraging like our fellow staff nurses to continue doing research because that's how we can change uh, what we do on a daily basis for and have better outcomes for our patients. That's true. That's very mm-hmm. true. That's a perfect way to end this chat, right? The best outcomes for our patients, right? That's right. That's right. That's what we do it for. That's right. All right. Well, thank you both for joining me today. And I will put the whole information in the introduction about the article and where it's for people to find it so they can read it. So I appreciate you joining me today. Oh, thanks, Jody. Thank you, Jody. Thanks for having us. It was nice meeting you. (laughs) Thank you for listening to this episode of Walk Talk. Please visit wocn.org slash podcast for additional details about this topic and the speakers. You can also get more information about subscribing to this podcast so you never miss an episode and to get the latest news and information from the WOCN Society. Again, that's wocn.org slash podcast. 
We look forward to having you join us for the next episode of Walk Talk. <laughs>